I'm Emily Williams, and this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly podcast from the Post and Courier. Today, we're revisiting a topic that we discussed about a year ago on this podcast, the plan to potentially build a seawall around Charleston's peninsula. The idea is to protect the flood-prone area from storm surge if the city were to be directly hit by a hurricane. It would also be the city's most substantial defense yet against sea rise caused by climate change. This project would be a massive undertaking, financially and logistically, and already years of planning have gone into it. In the last year, there have been some pretty significant updates to the plans, and reporter Chloe Johnson, who covers the coastal environment and climate change for the Post and Courier, is back today to recap those plans for us and explain all the important changes. For one, the estimated price of building the wall dropped significantly by several hundred million dollars. We'll explain why, go over some of the questions about these plans that have been answered, and new questions that have been raised. All right, here's Chloe. So for those who aren't familiar yet with these plans, let's go back over some of the basics. Why is Charleston discussing building a seawall? What's been going on for the past almost four years now is that the Army Corps of Engineers has been studying how to protect downtown Charleston from hurricane surge. And this is basically a wall of ocean water that gets pushed onto the city, you know, should a hurricane landfall here or near here. And this study is still in the feasibility phase. But generally, what's been proposed is about an eight mile wall. It would wrap around most of downtown Charleston, starting on the western edge along the Ashley River, where roughly the Wagner Terrace neighborhood is, going down south and following the path of the existing low and high battery, which are seawalls that we have right now. This would be about three feet higher than the high battery. And then wrapping up the Cooper River eastern edge of the city, going inland a little bit and stopping at about Mount Pleasant Street. So the wall is the main component of the plan, but there's a few other things incorporated. Pumps that would move rain outside of the wall, lots of gates, because this would cross streets and paths that people could use in dry times. And this is, I would say, definitely the biggest flood control proposal before the city maybe ever. Definitely the biggest one that could help us adapt to rising tides over time. So we've talked about these plans before on this podcast. That was about a year ago. So let's kind of rewind a little bit to the fall of, of 2020 when we discussed this before. Where were these plans then? And then let's kind of get into how they've changed since then. The plans were originally unveiled actually in the spring of 2020. And then there were a few rounds of public engagement and comment. And when they were first unveiled, they were a lot more expensive. So that's the first big change is that the price has gone down quite a bit. Originally, this was $1.75 billion, all told for design, construction, everything. That's a lot of money. And now we're down to $1.1 billion, which is certainly still a lot of money. But it does help in a few ways that it's gotten cheaper because it will be easier to convince the federal government to potentially pay for its portion of this cost. That's 65%. And the city is left with the remaining 35%, which has also gone down, obviously. That's about $385 million right now. Another change since last year is that the Corps has adjusted the plan. So 
originally it wanted to put a breakwater or basically a really long line of rocks south of the city in the harbor that would slow down oncoming waves so that they wouldn't hit the wall with such force basically the Corps now said oh we're going to scrap that we don't really think we need it that was an immensely expensive part of this plan so that has helped reduce the cost quite a bit there are some other adjustments in where the wall would be So before, there were several stretches that cut through river or marsh along the Ashley and Cooper rivers. That's really expensive to do because when you destroy marsh, you have to pay to mitigate that, essentially, either by helping restore marsh elsewhere or doing a special project. And that added cost to the proposal, significant cost. Constructing something in water or marsh is also just harder and pricier. And then finally, the core has downsized the pumps it's proposing because originally they wanted to put pumps in the city that were about as big as the ones in New Orleans. The core says those don't need to be quite as big now. Even though we've been doing this for about four years, which sounds crazy when you think about it, but that is the amount of time the core has been working on this. We don't really have a formal design yet. We're still in feasibility phase where both the city and the core are deciding, do we actually want to move forward with this? Is it feasible at all to put something like this here? There are a lot of big questions that people still have. And one that was raised by the earlier version of these plans was about whether a seawall around the peninsula would deflect waves and and just push more flooding to the surrounding areas like West Ashley and Mount Pleasant. Is that something that was addressed in the updated plans? So the question of whether water would rebound off this wall and flood other places has persisted from the moment it was proposed, essentially. Everyone's worried about it because no one wants their house to flood because downtown is protected. The Corps has done its own modeling. And what they say based on that modeling is that the difference would be basically negligible and only in really extreme events. You know, events where you're seeing ocean levels, harbor levels, 12 feet above where they might normally be. They say it's a difference of like one or two inches, maybe in these areas. I think when you think about the Charleston Harbor and the estuary that we all live around, that this community is centered around, it's really big. There's lots of streams and rivers. There's a lot of water. So what the core is saying is that this isn't just going to make that much of a mark. I know there are still some folks that are probably still worried about it, but that's the best answer we have right now is that their modeling doesn't really show a major effect from this wall. There have also been a lot of questions about where the wall exactly will go and what will fall inside the wall and things that might be outside the wall or or not included in the wall's bounds. So I guess first, where is the wall going to be according to the current plans? The Corps is now focusing on trying to make sure they build this on land, on high ground, wherever possible. There are some parts of the peninsula where that gets extremely tricky. So around the James Island Connector and the Charleston City Marina. Most of the Cooper Riverside, there's really challenging trade-offs between a lot of businesses that are at the water's edge or condos that are near the water's edge that aren't included inside the perimeter. The South Carolina Aquarium is 
outside of the perimeter of the wall. Their visiting section where you would go if you visit the aquarium is above the height, but they have a bunch of important stuff that's on the ground, including where they care for sea turtles, important electrical equipment, things like that. And they've been worried about that the whole time. The main concerns have come from two communities that are not really included in the perimeter at all. And the Corps has said they're going to do other things to help them. So one is Bridgeview Village. On the Cooper River side, Bridgeview is a low-income housing complex And the Corps has said that they're going to try and flood-proof the bottom floors of those buildings. The other community is Rosemont, which is along the Ashley River. It's a little neighborhood. It's tucked right up against Marsh, historically minority community. The Corps has said it will probably elevate the homes there. But I think there's a lot of persistent concern there about how much that's really going to help. Rosemont deals with flooding right now. Never mind if a hurricane's coming. It's tucked up right between the marsh and the highway. This is a problem they're dealing with day in, day out. I think in those two places, there's still some pretty persistent concerns about what exactly the core will do, if not this big structure and equity concerns as well, right? Are these two communities not going to receive the level of protection of other parts of the city? The core also got feedback from a major player here in the Charleston area, and that's the state ports authority because two of the ports facilities are not going to be within the wall as it's planned right now. Given the port's role in Charleston, right, in in the region, how significant was that feedback and, and what was the response? So the port is majorly important, not just to Charleston, but to the entire state. It's moving in and out goods that are made here. It's connected to the entire state's economy. So the port has two facilities along the Cooper River where the wall alignment has caused them concern. One is Union Pier which I think everyone expects is going to get redeveloped one day. It's sort of near the tourist heart of the city. The other is the Columbus Street Terminal, which still moves a bunch of cars that are made in South Carolina right now. And in both cases, the wall hews along streets on land. I think the port has expressed concerns about whether that fits with the future of Union Pier. It's expressed concerns about water ricocheting off the wall onto those two facilities, and it wants to make sure it has access in and out of Columbus Street. So it's said not that long ago that it could not support the current alignment of the plan. The problem is that the alignment could change almost up to construction, right? I mean, there's all sorts of factors that could affect it. You could find a bunch of you know, historic ruins, essentially, in the ground where you're digging. The alignment is very much an open question. And I think it's possible that the city, the core and the ports will get much closer on this, and this will get smoothed over, especially if we are able to proceed into the next design phase of the wall, where the alignment's really going to get hashed out. I would say it was the most significant pushback that has happened really since the inception of this project, because it's been so conceptual so far. Everyone's still feeling out how they feel about it, what it means. It was a major point of concern. That doesn't mean it won't get resolved eventually. Like you said, this is still in the feasibility stage. We are not in the design phase. And actually, we don't know if we're going to get to the design phase. That's a decision that has to be made that 
hasn't been announced yet. So since we are still in that feasibility stage, can we answer questions, questions that I think a lot of people in Charleston are asking about what this wall would actually look like? Basically, we cannot answer that. The city has started to look more at this question and just generally, what is the feel of this wall? There are places where it would rise seven or eight feet above ground. So how does that affect your cityscape? We aren't going to get that answer even about the exact materials on the exterior necessarily until we get into that design phase. And really, I think it's important to think about that phase as a big negotiation, basically, where you're negotiating with the core to see how far it will go to help you realign it in places that are problematic, avoid crossing major roads, you know, make it look pretty, right? Charleston's definitely a place that cares a lot about aesthetics in the historic district of the city where most of this wall will be located you can't change the color of your house without going to a city board. That will be of keen interest to Charleston if we move forward. I think another one of those big questions that people have, and it's a complicated one, is how effective a wall like this could actually be if Charleston were directly hit by a hurricane. What kind of information has the Corps gathered to show us the possible effectiveness of, of, of actually building a wall like this? The Corps has done simulations of what could happen based on different types of storms that might hit or approach the city. And I think it's important to remember that we have a historical example of this happening, Hurricane Hugo, which was extremely significant for the whole low country. It did not directly hit Charleston, however. So if Hurricane Hugo, which was a Category 4 storm, followed its same path and this wall was constructed as proposed, it would not get over the wall because the storm hit McClellanville north of us. However, if a Hugo-like storm directly hit the city of Charleston, its surge would would get over the wall. I think it's important to remember that there are constraints on what this structure can do. And part of that is because of the height of our existing highways. So basically, if it were any higher than this plan proposes, we'd have to start lifting highways, which just makes it astronomically more expensive. This is definitely not a structure that will keep all water out in all instances. I mean, even if you we're protected from the surge, rain will fall inside the city. Hopefully the pumps will deal with that. But, you know, if you had a direct hit from a really significant four or five, some water could get over this wall. And the Corps has definitely acknowledged that. Now, I think their argument would be, and I've heard them say this before, that there's still protection, right? As opposed to letting a wave just unabated wash over the city. If you have a wall there, even if some gets over, it's not going to be nearly as destructive in their view. So there's still some amount of protection, but I think it's important to remember the limits. And the city, for its part, has said multiple times that you would still need to evacuate people. You don't want to leave people behind this wall and just hope that it's all okay. Because in Hurricane Katrina, right, That was definitely not the case. After the storm, the levees there burst. New Orleans got more lucky recently with Hurricane Ida, where inside the wall, the city was relatively unscathed, but outside of it, of course, was a different 
story. So there are limits to what this structure is and what it can protect against. We'll be right back with Chloe after this quick message. Hi, I'm Taylor Istabo, and I'm an audience engagement producer for The Post and Courier. Our digital team makes sure the paper's journalism gets to you through our newsletters, social media accounts, and website. We put a lot of thought into what tweet will communicate the most important information from a story, or might make you laugh. And we know the news. We're constantly monitoring the biggest stories of the day and figuring out how to get that information to you. When you subscribe, you're supporting that work. Visit postandcourier.com slash subscribe today. Now, we talked a little bit about this earlier, about how the price tag has changed, how under the current plans, it's actually going to cost estimated several hundred million dollars less than what we were talking about a year ago. So let's talk about who's paying for it. What's kind of that breakdown of who would pay for this wall? So 65% of the cost, if it moves forward, is picked up by the federal government. That's the case for both construction and design, if we get all the way there. The rest of it, Charleston has to find the money. It doesn't have to pay for it entirely out of city coffers. So the city has long said that it would ask the state for money. And it recently put together a super initial sketch of the funding and said that it would ask for $75 million from the State Transportation Infrastructure Bank, which funds, you know, usually road projects, but this is something that would protect you know, major roads in and out of the city. I think that's some of the reasoning there. They're also going to ask Charleston County for $25 million. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> you know, the county has its own flooding concerns. There's various amounts of money that Charleston would like to get from the South Carolina Office of Resilience for the design phase of this. But a lot of this is coming from various city taxes and fees. Some would come from property taxes. Some would come from expected surpluses in taxes that are levied on tourists. And not all of the cost is accounted for. Even with the initial plan that we have so far, there's about $100 million left <laughs> that Charleston needs to account for through the life of the project. But I think, again, what the focus has become, especially as we're getting closer to this decision, is do we do the design portion? I mean, we could move into design and decide we're not getting a project we like and then just totally drop out. But I think the big push at the city level has been you need to get to design to really decide, okay, are we going to go all the way in and spend that $385 million on building this thing? Can we design something we actually want? The decision on whether to go into design is going to come probably by the end of this year. That's something that city council still needs to vote on. If the city does decide to move forward with this and if the court does decide to bring this to Congress, do we know how competitive this proposal might be when it's brought up to that federal level? In the past year, this is actually one of the biggest changes is this project has become extremely competitive. And it was kind of surprising to me when the court did its reanalysis. All of this hinges on a ratio of benefit to cost, right? So the core says if I spend $1 on this project, it'll save X dollars in damage from a surge event down the line. 
So they're saying that for every dollar we spend on this right now, we would be saving $10 in avoided damage. That is massive. That is extremely big and way bigger than it was for the project at its first version that was released last year. And that's because they brought the cost down. They removed some of the more expensive components. But also the core says that the value of land inside the wall has appreciated, which is kind of hard to imagine. But, you know, that's what their analysis showed. So I think the core is really excited about it for that reason. It is not common at all that you get a, you know, 10 to 1 roughly ratio for a project like this. That doesn't mean it's guaranteed by any means, right? You know, the Corps has a lot of unfunded projects that Congress has not given money to. You know, nothing is guaranteed at all, but I think all of the people who've been working on this feel extremely optimistic um, about that ratio and its competitiveness on the federal level. Say we do get through that design phase. This is fully funded. We build the wall. What would that involve for the city on a regular basis to maintain this wall? You know, make sure it stays effective and actually helps us. You know, what would that kind of maintenance be for the city after a seawall would be built? This is a huge structure. It would include 78 different gates that would need to get opened and closed. You have to make sure all those things slide and lock and seal. You have to make sure it stays standing, right? So yeah, it's a significant undertaking to operate and maintain something like this. And the core expects this to have at least a 50-year life. The estimated cost for that right now is $3 million a year. So it is significant. It's kind of a new department of the city, potentially, to make sure everything's in good working order and that things open and close as they need to. You know, it's important to note that the Corps' goal here is to protect the city from hurricane surge. That's the specific threat that they're defending against. But the city could end up using this just for high tides, right? We're going to have this week close to a nine foot tide in the Charleston Harbor. And in the future, if we have a tide like that, Charleston may decide, all right, let's close all the gates, right? Let's keep the city dry. And that could happen more and more often as sea level rise makes Charleston Harbor get higher and makes these flooding events even more common. So it's a significant cost. And I think it's more active and labor intensive than maybe people think about. You know, it's not just greasing the wheels every once in a while. It's maybe closing and opening these gates multiple times in a given year by the time we reach the end of the life of this project. So this whole time we've been discussing the idea of building a sea wall specifically. Are people in agreement that a wall is the best option or have any other alternatives been suggested, you know, for the same purpose of protecting Charleston in the event of a direct hit from a hurricane? There's some different groups that would like to see what you might call nature-based solutions, living shorelines constructed of oysters or rocks, earthen levees, something a little different from a really engineered wall. The core has incorporated a little bit of that. That is also part of its updated plan. It wants to put some of these 
sort of living shorelines in the Ashley River to slow down waves that would wash up against the wall, but not to stop the water entirely. So I think you have to think about what the goal is. Like, is the goal to stop some of our moderate flooding right now? Are there places where you're trying to stop erosion? Are you trying to do things that help water quality? Oysters are really good at that. You know, if those are your goals, nature-based solutions are great. If you're thinking about a major storm that hits in a decade when the ocean's a little bit higher, are a bunch of oyster reefs, engineered oyster reefs, going to stop that? Not necessarily. I think the conservation community acknowledges that. I just heard the head of the Coastal Conservation League basically say as much this morning in a meeting of people studying this proposal. The concern, though, is that can you incorporate these things better? Because I think there is a persistent feeling that the court has resorted like only to a wall, right? That you could use this in tandem a little bit more than they are right now. So that's part of the kind of delicate negotiation that I guess is is ongoing. And a lot of those sustainability focus groups have been saying all along, we'd like to see more of this. What's been the most interesting thing about following this story and covering it, particularly over the last year, you know, since the last time that we talked about these plans? That's a really good question. I mean, anytime you talk about putting up a wall, it creates all these dichotomies. Who's inside and who's outside? But what's most interesting about it is this is how Mayor Tecklenburg is pitching preserving the city over the long term. You know, he calls climate change and sea rise an existential threat to Charleston. This is the biggest attempt to fend off that threat. And for all the discussion about where to put it, how high to make it, what it's made out of. If there isn't a wall here in a century, this landscape's going to be dramatically different. And I think he's correct to say that, you know, you do need protection to ensure the viability of this region. Is the Corps' proposal to do that the best one? Maybe, maybe not. We'll decide on that, I think, in the coming months. But It does sort of unearth all these different questions about how do we protect the city and what kind of city do we want to be in the future. All right, that's all for today. For more information about everything we've discussed today, I've linked multiple stories in today's show notes where you can learn more. You can find Chloe on Twitter at underscore Chloe AJ. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for this podcast, email us at understandsc at postingcourier.com or DM us on Twitter at understandsc. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Posting Courier. Our intro music is by Billy Fountain. You can find his music on Spotify. Let us know what you think of the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Keep up with the latest headlines at postingcourier.com. We'll be back next week with a different news story from our state. Thanks for listening.